0: Go to Romans chapter fourteen, verse thirteen. Now, I I understand that we have looked at these verses a couple of times. We're going to hopefully hit this from a different angle because we're on those negative commands of "don't do this" rather than "do this." What I found it interesting is I was going through my list of one another passages. Which book in the Bible do you think contain the most directions for living life with one another? It's Romans. Which is incredible when you think about it because Romans is such high theology and it, it gets so much attention for the rich theology and it sometimes we miss the richness of how to live out our theology. That's always how it is and when we see God gives us something in terms of revealing of himself, and then he he tells us how to live that out. I have seen many times over where bad theology leads to wrong living, and uh, it's paralyzing for people. And so it's amazing that the way God orders his word for us is he tells us who we are in Christ. He tells us that we are saved by grace and we are sanctified by that same grace. We're sanctified by Christ and in Christ. And then he tells us this is how how you live. This is how you live in a body of people. And so this passage here in chapter 14 of Romans, verse 13, Therefore... Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So the direct uh, command here is not passing judgment, and then it's followed up with another negative statement of you are not to do this. Now, specifically, we're going to look in at the stumbling block and hindrance. A stumbling block is an obstacle that is for the purpose of causing someone to stumble. In the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Old Testament was written in Hebrew And in about 400 B.C. it was translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint translates the same word as a snare. A snare is something that you catch an animal with. It's a trap. And so the connotation is something that is going to cause harm to someone else. It's with intention. It's purposeful of putting this block in front of someone. It's, It's kind of... It's, it's kind of like when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're walking through your hallway and what do you trip over? Shoes. It's a stumbling block. Except for the stumbling block is intentionally put there that is to trip someone up. And these words there... The, That are put and the negation never. It speaks of intent. It speaks of something that's not an accidental obstacle, but something that someone put there with intentional harm. So we're not to put something in someone's way that would cause them to stumble. And the connotation of stumble is that of sin. And within our context, it's not necessarily a clear cut sin, but rather the person has a sin of the conscience. It's something they have done that is not inherently sinful but it goes against their conscience. This is the context is about Christian liberty. A hindrance is really parallel to that which is something that causes one to sin. So we are not to put anything in in anyone's way that could cause them to sin, or cause them to fall, or for them to go against their, con- uh, against their conscience. And the context here is that of a stronger Christian. Romans 14 identifies two types of Christians. What are they? Weaker Christian and the stronger Christian. And so the context here, I believe in in Romans, is that he's addressing the stronger Christian. In your liberty, in your freedom, in your Christian freedoms, do not intentionally cause a person to sin. A parallel to Romans 14 is 1 Corinthians 8-10. through And Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 8, verse uh, 8, where he says or excuse me, verse 9, but take care that this right of yours, that's speaking of a right, a, a Christian liberty, this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So, he's addressing the church in Corinth with almost the exact same uh, thing, is the weaker brother do not put something in their way that could cause them to fall. Now you notice how verse 13 begins in Romans. Therefore, which is following everything that's been said in chapter 14. He's coming to the conclusion of what all of this this means. He begins by saying, let us not pass judgment on one another. That's actually a command. This is, don't judge anyone any longer. And that context is over Christian liberty. And the, the, the way this verse is stated is, like this, do not continue to be critical of one another. Don't be critical of others. And the idea that it's continuing means what? It was taking place in the church. Your stronger brethren were being very critical of their weaker brethren. It's really not a sin to do that, to enjoy this food. It was over food. You know, you, or, 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 you, you should be able to enjoy any food that you want. And the weaker brother was saying, no, we don't want to eat these things because they were ceremonially unclean. And the stronger brother, brother says, well, hold on, Jesus made everything clean. Being very critical of them and putting them down. And so he's saying, don't do this. Do not be judgmental over them. Now, this is not a call to not judge, per se, but rather a call to not be critical of people that have convictions that are different than yours. We may, have, we may come together under the same truths of the gospel that unite us in Christ, but we do have different convictions about things that are within Christian liberty. How, you know, this is in the context of food. Well, what what about how you consider, how you raise your children? How you, uh, what you're going to choose in terms of um, your career or your education? I've heard many fundamental pastors say, okay, once you become a Christian, you can't have certain careers. as if the career is in in itself inherently evil. Now, there obviously are some that are. But the whole point is is that we have different convictions that are not clear-cut cases of sin and actually usually aren't. In the case of diet, because Jesus declared all foods clean, if someone wanted to eat a certain way, why does that bother me? It shouldn't, right? Why would they be critical over it? So this idea of judgment here is that of scrutinizing another person's behavior or their held convictions. And when we are doing that, let's just put our, ourselves in the shoes of the stronger Christian. Okay, So we're all in the shoes of the stronger Christian right now. When we are constantly looking at others and how they do things, we are no longer looking at who? No longer looking at ourselves. True, I know you said we're no longer looking at Christ. That's true, but we're also no longer we're we're not looking at ourselves. What does Jesus say about judgment? You see a speck in your brother's eye when you got a log in your own, and before we can ever remove the speck in our brother's eye, what what does Jesus tell us to do? Take the log out of our own eye. Sometimes, maybe it's better to look at ourselves. You think about that old adage in Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, is before I'm going to say anything about anyone else's sin, I'm going to see how I'm doing it. So when we're constantly looking and scrutinizing other people, we've actually placed ourselves on a plane of judgment over them, and we're no longer looking at our own sins and our own problems. Guaranteed, sometimes if we are looking in the mirror, we realize, oh, okay, I need to take care of this area. I think that if we see something in someone else, we should be asking, okay, how do I manifest that in my own life? How is it that I am guilty of that same thing? And in the context of a stronger and weaker Christian, What can happen in that type of environment, and this is really what Paul is addressing, is an air of pride exists. And that's what's happening. And it's really pride on both sides. And and here's how. The weaker Christian from abstaining from certain Christian liberties, what they can do is they can view their abstinence as an act of piety. (laughs) You may be free to eat those things, but we don't, because we are actually more in tune with God than you are. God declared those things unclean at one time. Sure, he declared them clean, but that's just because you guys can't control yourself. You could think of how they would say that, where they become actually prideful in their piety, whereas the stronger Christian can view their enjoyment of liberties with pride as well, right? How would they do that? How would the stronger Christian that enjoys those liberties, how can that become a source of pride for them? If it becomes a source of pride for them... It's because they think that they've elevated to this point, and whereas this other person that hasn't gotten there, they've reached some spiritual plane that no one else has. They're now the elite of the elite Christians. Paul calls them stronger. I want to be called the stronger Christian. I can enjoy these liberties now at this point, both the stronger and weaker Christian, if they take on those type of things, if the weaker Christian takes on a, a pious attitude and the, the, the stronger Christian takes on a sense of elevated Christianity, neither are concerned for their brother, but rather are self-centered. They're rather self-centered at that point. And everything that they do is in light of what their brother is doing. Both contrast themselves in light of others rather than in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. As soon as we get to that position where I base my Christianity on someone else, I have based my Christianity not on the standard of Christ, but on the standard of a fallen human being that's in need of grace and Christ as well as I am. It's the wrong standard. We can't compare ourselves to one another. If we if we do that, we might actually think at some point, I've arrived. I, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I can enjoy and handle these Christian liberties, whereas they can't. And so both are contrasting themselves in light of, of one another rather than in light of Christ. However, As we look at verse 13, I believe primarily it's the stronger Christian that is being described here. And the reason why it's the stronger Christian is because the stumbling block or hindrance would not be a stumbling block or hindrance to the stronger Christian. I think he's directing this towards the stronger Christian. Stronger Christian that enjoys certain Christian liberties is told, don't practice these in such a way that you cause someone to fall, that you cause someone to stumble. And in verses 4 and 10, in the same section, it seems like he's addressing the weaker brothers, where he says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems that one day is better than another, while, each, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It seems like there he's more likely addressing the weaker brother. And he's telling them to not do what? Who are you to pass judgment on him? So in verse 13, I think the emphasis is more on the stronger brother. And it's calling into question a person's liberty that could bring doubt into a person's mind. So the weaker brother could actually, in his passing judgment, could say, you know, we don't do this because we think this is sinful. What does that do to the, weak, the stronger brother? Puts doubt in his mind. And so the whole point is the weaker brother can't judge the stronger brother. So here's the thing. There are Christian liberties that are very clear. Scripture does not bind our conscience on these things. There are some that abstain from certain Christian liberties. That is their right to do so. But they can't now enforce a law upon the stronger brother that says that's sin. I think Paul makes the point that now the stronger brother can be afflicted in his own conscience, like, wait, am I sinning? When it's clearly not. The weaker brother can't be in the place of God and binding the conscience. And likewise, the stronger brother in this Christian liberty cannot do these things in such a way that causes the weaker brother to stumble. So when they do this, they show a lack of love for their brother And specifically, what the stronger brother does this, it will cause grieving. Look at verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Notice what he says here. This grief is something that causes distress. It causes them to be sorrowful it causes one to grieve because in their mind they have sinned because of the stronger brother's liberty was placed in them in front of them in such a way that caused them to sin rather than causing our brother to grieve look at verse 1 what it says As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Are people opinionated about things? Yeah. Absolutely. What does God tell us about fighting over opinions? Opinion assumes that we're not talking about some transcendent truth of God. So, what does God tell us about opinions? Don't fight over them. We're not to fight over them. God says that to us. That's a thus saith the Lord. Don't quarrel over opinions, but he says, as for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him. So, if someone doesn't embrace certain Christian liberties, we're not to fight over that with them and show them how they're wrong, but rather to welcome them. And we we all understand that where we are when we first come to faith is not where we're going to be in 10 years, right? So rather than crush someone right at the beginning, Paul says welcome them and don't fight over certain things that are opinions. But we're to be welcoming. So when we see this word of, of judge, we are not to be critical over others. Now, this is a very interesting word play that you will not see in the English, but it's there in the Greek. He says, but rather decide, it's the, it's the same word that you see in let us not pass judgment. So here's what he says, let us not pass judgment, but rather judge So there's a negative use of it, and then there is a positive use of that word, judge it, all in the same verse. And here it's rather, it's decide, it's to judge, it's to determine, and so it's the same word that's being used. Don't judge, and then he turns around and says, judge. In, in verse 4, he does the same thing, where he says, who are you to pass judgment on the uh, servant of another? In verse 5, then, he says, one person judges one day is better than another. He does the same thing, where he uses the same word, but uses it differently. So it's a play on words that Paul is doing uh, to get us to, to notice what he says here. MacArthur says, Paul's play on words demands that we should never be judgmental of fellow believers, but instead should use our best judgment to help them. And I think that's a good word. We don't judge others in in a judgmental sense, but we're to take that same exercise of judgment to judge how we are able to help them in their growth. You might call that discipleship. So here is a judgment we are to uh, make, and that is to not put things in their ways that would cause them to stumble. We are not to make them stumble, but rather we are to help them. John Murray says of this idea here of putting a, a hindrance in them, or a stumbling block. He says, In the most aggravated sense, an occasion of falling is placed before a person when the intention is that of seduction. There is deliberate intent that the person may fall. And I love how Murray states that, that this idea of putting a stumbling block or hindrance in front of someone is that of a seduction into sin. And so it's very intentional, it's very subtle in what the person does. And so this requires that the stronger Christian must cease from whatever it is that causes the weaker brother to stumble. Now this is, again, this is all about liberty and this is specifically in the context of eating clean and unclean food verse 14 he says i know and am persuaded in the lord jesus that nothing is unclean in itself but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean so his point is is this food is not intrinsically evil but some for some they have a conscience about food let me just ask you this is strange to us because we just eat whatever we want we just ate a whole bunch of food and I don't think anyone said, that food's unclean. I can't eat it. You're gonna eat the unclean food? We just don't have that in our language. So what's the context? Well, in the ceremonial law. Jewish had a kosher diet. Anything outside of that kosher diet was declared what? Unclean. Gentiles come into the church. They want to eat bacon bacon's good. We love it. They want to continue eating it. And for the Jewish brethren, they haven't quite gotten the taste of it yet. And so they view it as unclean. And so this was a big hang-up for many of them. But Paul's saying food is not evil in and of itself, but they may have a conscience about it. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I think that if you look at chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, it's Paul's expanded teaching on this same issue. And he says in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 8, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called uh, gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things exist and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So notice the context is it was these new Christians that one time partook of sacrificial idolatry and offering foods to idols, now that they've come to faith, they don't want anything to do with it. But there's some that said, actually, that food's just food. I mean, do you know where your meat came from that you bought? And whether the owner of the dairy or maybe the butcher might have been a Satanist. Did you interview him? Well, no. And that's what Paul's point is. Is that... This is not, does not make the food itself bad, but look what he says in verse 7, and this is where we have to pay attention. You know that, I know that, but look what verse 7 says, however, not all possess this knowledge. Not everyone thinks the same way on it. All of it have come to that maturity or that understanding. He goes on, but some, through former association with idols, eat food is really offered to an idol. In other words, when they eat this food that was one time... Uh, given to an idol, it brings back memories of that idol worship to them and so they don't want anything to do with it. Are there any things that come in our way from our BC life that we go, I don't want anything to do with it because it brings back memories of how I used to live? That's the situation. You can have uh, sympathy with the person that, that has that experience He goes on in verse 8 to say, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So notice what Paul says. Paul has argued, look, this food is just food. It's not evil in and of itself. It's just food. And you're free to eat any type of food you want. It doesn't matter what took place with it. It's food and it's okay. But not all understand this. And you shouldn't use this right of yours to eat this food as a way that could cause someone actually to stumble, even though eating the food, catch this, isn't wrong to do. You think about that idea that you can be right, but you can be wrong in your rightness. That's the point. He says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. So instead of encouraging our brother, which we're to encourage one another, that's a one another command, we're now actually discouraging our brother's. So if this Christian liberty that we enjoy is at the, used at the expense of, of your brother, now think about it. If you use your Christian liberty at the expense of a, of a brother because it's your right, actually that Christian liberty now is controlling you and taking precedence over your brother. It's my, I can eat this food. I can, do, I can enjoy this if, just because they're offended by it. Why should I care why they're offended by it? I'm going to enjoy this. That's controlling you. You don't, you don't have dominion over that. You don't have control over that. It has it over you if you can't give something up for your brother. So it's not a matter of liber, liberty, but rather that one can't show considerateness towards others look at verse 21 it is good not to eat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble now paul as we see him and encounter him in his in the book of acts and in his letters and his confrontation with peter and other issues we see peter or paul was incredibly consistent And he's saying that we can eat all of these things, you can drink all of these things, but not at the expense of your brother. So if it causes them to stumble, we're not to do it. And so both Romans and Corinthians deal with things that are not inherently sinful, but for some, as a matter of conscience, they stumble. And it's something that causes grief in them. And it's difficult for them to get over So we have to get over ourselves, if we are the stronger Christian, for the sake of the weaker Christian. So for those that do not struggle, they must not judge their brother, but rather judge their own course of action for the sake of their brother. Now everything in this overall passage directs us to look not to our own interests, but rather the interest of our brother's. That we may not place something in their way that causes them to stumble. Look at what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. He's talking about believers there, he's talking about disciples anyone who believes in him that we cause to stumble, guess what the weaker brother is? A believer. The weaker brother is a disciple. The stronger brother is a believer. The stronger brother is a disciple as well. So the weaker and the stronger Christian dichotomy does not equal that one is actually more deserving of grace or is in a higher spiritual plane than the other. It's an issue of maturity. Notice what Paul says back in Romans 14, verse 18. He says, Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. That's applied to both weaker brother and stronger brother. If you're in Christ, you're acceptable to God. If you're an immature Christian, you're still a Christian. And you're accepted not on the basis of your maturity or your strength as being a Christian. You're accepted by God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. We have to recognize that when we think of this paradigm of a weaker and a stronger brother. That just because one may be further along in their faith doesn't make them any more deserving. There's another point that I think that I want to apply this is this, is Christian liberty is not something that can ever be a means of separation amongst brethren. Let me repeat that. Because it's really, we we can get bent out of shape really quickly and move into separation over things that are opinions And as a result, split. So Christian liberty is not something that can ever be used as a means of separation or a reason for separating. Paul writes in verse 19 and 20, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. There it is. Over a Christian liberty we're not allowed to separate over it. The work of God is that unity that we enjoy within the local body. We're not allowed to let opinions separate us. You know, and I, I think about this, we've talked about this before, is you have those, those first-level fundamental essential doctrines then you have secondary issues, and then you have tertiary issues. Opinions, I don't think, are are in either of those categories. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see them in those three categories. I think we're looking at practical ways of living in our Christian maturity. We can't allow those things, but those things, because we live Amongst those things so often, they, they tend to be a flashpoint for Christians. So differences in matters of liberty cannot be elevated to the level of, say, a, an intense theological debate, which may cause division, and sometimes rightly so. Because when we elevate those things that are a matter of opinion, or, say, Christian growth or maturity and we elevate them to a point of division, we actually are no longer about the kingdom. Because look what he says. He uses the word destroy, which is something that is abolished. In the Roman church, here, when he writes to, to the Romans, they had experienced growth, they experienced wonderful fellowship, they had outreach, but matters of opinion threatened their existence. Paul spends more time on this than he does the government. Think about that. I mean, you would think that, that Caesar feeding Christians to the lions. Might be a more pressing issue to deal with. No, he's talking about Christians being fed to other Christians. He says these cannot be something that divides us. Now, there's something else here about this that that I think is helpful to see. Eating here is not pictured as something private. He's not dealing with something private. Someone does in the privacy of their home, is he? Because if I ate food that the weaker brother saw as being unclean in the privacy of my own home, they would have no knowledge of it, and I'm free to do that. He's talking about communal fellowship and this taking place. Think about the picture of the church in Acts in chapter 2, in verse 42. It says, "...and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching... those who were being saved. That model that you see of that fellowship centered around the word of Christ, enjoying a meal together, uh, studying the apostles' teaching, as you read this, that happened often, day by day. I would assume that as Christianity grew, that would have been the model for the most part, of what it would have looked like. And Christianity coming to faith was so radical and new versus our day. We grew up in many ways. I don't want to argue whether we live in a Christian society, but in many ways we we, we, we grew up in a nation where there's a Bible in every home. Well, this was a new thing. They have this entire new identity with their brothers and sisters in the Lord. So they're now communing together, eating meals together, in this new identity they have. It was a very communal thing. And if you think about it, as the church spread to different regions, it usually started with, the growth of the church usually began with first 2. The Jews. Whoever was the Jewish group or synagogue in that area, That's where the apostles would usually go. But then now all of a sudden you have in the church, you have Jewish people, you have Romans, you have Greeks, you have Egyptians, you have all of these different groups from various backgrounds and various cultures coming together for a fellowship and for prayer and for a Bible study. And guess what they bring with them? Their different cultural norms. Now, look at this that Jesus addresses in Mark chapter 7. Just to kind of help us get an idea of what it would have been like. It says in verse 1 of Mark 7 Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, Now, the historical backdrop is likely from Exodus chapter 30, where the priest was commanded in sacrificial ceremonies to wash. Well, by the rise of the Pharisees, the Pharisees said, you know what, it's, we've really departed far from God's law, so just to make sure that we don't depart any further, we need to add to it. So everyone now has to wash. Now, I, I actually, uh, I don't know that I'm a germaphobe, but I, I want people to wash their hands, right? But that's the historical backdrop, is a law had come into place, and so the Jewish people lived under this idea. You put them in context of, say, the Romans and the Greeks and the Egyptians that didn't have that same view, they're going to think differently about it. Different cultures have different views of things. I heard this story of this missionary in Thailand where they all sat down to eat and one of the animals came to this missionary and he, like, touched it or did something to it. So they took the animal, went and slaughtered it, and they ate it. Because the way it works in their tradition is whatever you touch the guess that's what they're going to eat. Think about that cultural difference. You think about like how, you know, we all, um, we wouldn't put our feet up on the table. We wouldn't do certain things. Well, in certain cultures, that might be acceptable. Now you take these different cultures and you put them all in the same room, and Paul's saying, "Look, these things are not sinful." Don't feed the dog from the table. Either. Yeah, don't. Is there any- yeah, don't, don't do not do that. So there's different cultural things. And Paul's saying, look, you guys are getting bent out of shape over these things. They're not sinful. And so just because that offends one person or the other person is free to do that, don't judge them over it. Just let it go. So how are we supposed to have life and community with one another? It's this way, is we're to live Considerately for our brother and our sister. We have certain liberties, and some liberties could strike someone's conscience. And so we should not cause them to stumble because we have the right to imbibe and so, or take, partake in some sort of Christian liberty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have freedom. We thank you, Father, that we are not bound by the conscience of man, but by your word. But we do pray that, Father, we would never use our freedom as a license to cause anyone to stumble, anyone to uh, be grieved in their conscience. We pray that you give us wisdom, that you give us discernment. Now, as we depart from here, we pray you prepare our hearts when we will gather this coming Sunday. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.